In a chase that will leave you stunned and breathless. In a story too bizarre to be fiction. In the great tradition of American thrillers comes The French Connection. From one end of town to the other, from the penthouses to Skid Row. I Popeye's here! The meanest cop in the toughest city in the world is after The French Connection. And he's moving at high speed. You want to take a ride there, Batman? Popeye Doyle. He fights dirty and plays rough. He's bad news, but he's a good cop. He's got a nose for trouble, and this time he smells $32 million worth, and every penny points to the French connection. Popeye Doyle. He cracks skulls, breaks cases, and shatters the rules. Watch him bust the French connection. All right, nobody move! Put your hands in the air! Gene Hackman is Popeye Doyle in The French Connection. In color from 20th Century Fox, rated R, under 17, not admitted without a parent. The French Connection is smashing entertainment. A supreme movie movie, says Judith Crisp. Welcome back to Reconcinimation. I am John Diner. And I'm David Munchak. And this is the podcast that takes a look back at some of our favorite films from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And we are back and continuing to look at one of our very favorite actors, Gene Hackman, with this year's Hackathon. Right, David? Hackathon 2.0. Wait, 3.0? Because this is part one, three. Part three <laughs> of Hackathon 1.0. Okay, hack- right, yes. <laughs> oh, this is still Hackathon 1.0? I thought you just had hack- to keep adding digits to every version. I don't know. No, this is, we're in Hackathon 1. This is okay. part 3, yeah, whatever you want to call three. it, guys. Part 3, it's 1.6 probably. <laughs> and then <laughs> yes. a, a year from now when we do three more Hackathon movies, it'll be Hackathon 2.0. Yeah, I'm into okay, that. Okay, got it. I'm down okay, with Okay, cool. Cool. Yeah, no, but we're we're continuing the hackathon. This is very exciting for me. Yeah. And I know guys, I know the world is crazy out there and there's there's obviously so much uh continuing to go on, but uh we uh want to just, you know, take our minds off for a little bit and come come join us by the fireside. Uh, we're going to chat about about Gene and celebrate his work. He uh, he turned 90 a few uh, a few months back and so uh, we decided since we hadn't really looked at any of his, I mean, his huge body of work, uh, that we were going to start uh, devoting a portion of the year just to Gene Hackman movies because there's so damn many good ones, right? Absolutely. This is what this is what we're here for. This is our job. Um, yeah. So we appreciate Record, all recording who... from afar, recording from separate places. <laughs> so don't everyone who is worried, we're fine. <laughs> We well we're all I mean even if we were on the lot together we would be in hermetically sealed booths away from each other, um, at least fifty yards away where we could see each other because we don't want to share the same air. Um, that's where now, I feel most comfortable. Yeah, I know that's like that was a, a mandate when you had the studio built uh, low many years ago that yeah. no one could come within your space unless it's one of the interns um, or one of the celebs that could stop by. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I'm happy to keep celebrating Gene Hackman and his greatness. Uh, well, yes, the as of our recording, the world is definitely going through a lot of things. And this is our way of, of continuing our status quo and uh, remembering the things that we enjoy and uh, can celebrate with you. So let's get into it. 
And if you guys haven't checked out our other Gene Hackman episodes, then go back into the archives and check out Hoosiers uh, from 1986 and 1975's Night Moves, which is a lesser known film, but a big, uh, you know, it's grown in cult status over the years, but really, really cool, you know, detective movie. So check yeah. those out at www.reconcinemation.com. Yeah, point your browser or your web uh, web uh, phone. Web, web phone? device? Mobile? Web device. De- yeah, web de- point- interweb device. Search Twitter for reconcinemation.com and click on whatever <laughs> the hell comes up. Uh, but today we are going to look at Potentially, I, where would you say uh, on on Gene's most famous movies? Uh, where does this rank? What do you think? Oh, I mean, for for if people are talking Gene Hackman, top two, top one? I don't know, right? I don't oh know. yeah, it's it's definitely top. like when I think Gene Hackman, you know, this is one of the first ones. It's like this for me, Superman and Unforgiven are probably the top three that that pop in there. And I and yeah. Hoosiers really like those are my I think my top four. Yeah, you're right. I mean, and, and that's like three. Those are four solid movies from very different eras of of film, really, for him. I think like so. We this is Gene through the ages, and this is one, the one we're talking about. This goes all the way back to seventy one. Yeah, I, I didn't even know move they made movies back then. So. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> to, and it still holds they up. They just almost invented 50 celluloid years. by then. <laughs> fifty years, almost fifty years out. We're uh, oh, we're talking crazy. about it, and it's still yeah. it's still it's still something that people, um, you know, it, it's got an elevated status and um, among uh, cinema. So yeah, I, the fact that we're going to tackle it, boy, can't wait to get my take on the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Gene Gene has just contributed for across what four decades that he was uh making films and of course he retired in 2004, but uh he just made so many strong movies and even even the movies that weren't so great, he was great in them. Uh never phoned it in, always committed, always he was so great at either, you know, he could play uh, villains. He could play good guys. He could play cops. He could play criminals. He could play cowboys. He could play military guys. A- anything. He was all over the place. And um, you know, his best work ranging from Bonnie and Clyde all the way to the Royal Tenenbaums. It's just uh, so much, so many good things to look at, and it all falls in the time frame of our show. So uh, yeah. let's let's take a look at his potentially most famous and successful movie. The French Connection. Perfect. Now, David, when when was the first time you saw The French Connection or heard about it? Oh, heard about it going back decades. Uh, I always had an awareness of French Connection. Uh, I, and I had seen moments of this movie throughout the years, I think, because it it had that uh, that that sustainability that th- people were always going to be talking about this. So um, I... I it, it was a movie that I knew uh, existed, but I had never really sat down to watch until really it was come down to us watching it for this show, which, again, for all the cinephiles out there, big sin. But I'm not one of you. I'm me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be me. But, I mean, it, it was funny that uh, re-watching, well, watching this movie, um, so many things, iconic moments, 
clips, scenes that that would have been shown at the Oscars, things that, or, or even just like Hackman kind of. I, I'm sure I've seen them like um, things where Hackman was featured as a you know whatever him being his career all of that so. like like inside the actor studio type deals yeah something like that I mean it's just sort of you know he he's a celebrated actor who's um, the this was something that was always going to be at the top of of uh, the discussion so a lot of familiarity with just certain visuals and and certain scenes and I mean the 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 big chase. Um, definitely, uh, I had seen, uh, at least most of probably, but also of seeing that out of context. So seeing it, everything that I've ever seen together in one cohesive unit, um, that was this week and I'm happy to be here. How about you? Well, and that, and that's the, uh, that is the concept of our, of our show here is that, you know, I have seen many of these movies, especially the French connection several times, many times. Uh, and David is sort of looking at it through the lens of the modern perspective and and uh, the newer view on some of these classic films and not so yeah. classic films. But, uh, yeah, so that's we're seeing it from different points of view. And does do, do these films work today and do they hold up? And, uh, you know, the French Connection. God, I remember seeing the poster as a kid, uh, you know, as a kid and wandering through video stores you know, and watching a lot of TV, there's a lot of imagery that pops in my in my memory. And this uh, this was one of them. I mean, seeing the poster of him shooting, you know, up at uh, uh, Pierre Nicole, I think is his name, Nic- uh, Pierre Nicole, Pierre, yeah, Pierre Nicole, yeah. Uh, as he's shooting up at him after the the chase sequence, and you know, he's he's facing the camera and is about to fall backwards down the stairs where Popeye Doyle is standing there with a the gun. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's a really kind of intense image and, uh, definitely stuck with me. I saw the movie in full for the first time when I was working at my favorite place in the world, Suncoast Motion Picture Company. Ah. Uh, I had, I had just gotten back from a trip out to California where my uncle had sat me down and put me through his, his film school, uh, which was all seventies movies. It was I'd seen Godfather 1, but he, he sat me down and made me watch Godfather 2, Chinatown, Deer Hunter, uh, so many others. And, and French Connection was one he didn't show me, but it was like next on my list. So when I got back and I started working at Suncoast, it was one of the first movies that I bought and, you know, just had a focused screening of it. And it just blew me away. Nice. Yeah. Wow. That's great. That's an amazing, amazing time. All these discoveries happening like sort of all in a very condensed period and then and then on your own you're just like you're continuing that uh that adventure yeah and it was it was the the at the end of the summer of 96 so while i had just gone through watching your twisters your your mission impossibles independence days in the theater and was like very into those movies by the end of that summer i had seen all of these films from the 70s uh, and early '80s, like Raging Bull, and just sort of like reprogrammed my my you know film taste uh, by the end of that summer. So, and this was a big part of it. Oh, interesting. Uh, changed, but changed you. To, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> but the uh, yeah. So this was. Let's talk about 
Before we get to Gene specifically, let's talk about kind of the bigger picture of this movie. So for those that maybe aren't as familiar with what The French Connection is, it's based on a real, uh, basically one of the most famous drug busts in, in I think, American history. Uh, it was a bust in 1962 uh, that tracked this this heroin drug dealing scheme all the way from Turkey through France and into America and was, at the time, that was one of uh, the biggest heroin pipelines uh, in existence. So this film and the book that it was based on, uh, written by Robin Moore in 1969, looks at the, you know, the, the police officers who discovered what was going on, did the investigation, and essentially solved the crime, not necessarily nailing every criminal, but um, they, did, they did make one of the largest bug dru- drug busts in history. So this heroin drug trafficking started in 1937, just before World War II, uh, and and kind of went throughout uh, World War II, using a lot of the uh, stolen World War II assets during the uh, German occupation of France. But uh, even prior to that, these Turkish opium farmers who were you know selling opium to drug companies, they would turn around and sell the excess opium to drug dealers and that was where it originated from so it would get shipped from turkey and in france it would go usually through the port of marseille uh which was controlled by this corsican corsican gang led by paul carbone uh and they would purify and and it would actually become the most pure heroin at the time uh all while in france there and actually paul carbone's gang was (laughs) coincidentally protected by the CIA for helping fight against the French communists. So this whole thing is like all muddy to begin with. It's like, you know, drugs getting shipped partially legally to drug companies and then partially illegally through the drug trafficking route. And then the American government protecting the dealers in France for what they're doing, but not knowing that the drugs are also coming to the States. So it's it's a complicated uh, web there, but uh, so all the way through the '40s and '50s, they're they're moving like uh, ranging between twenty five hundred and five thousand pounds of heroin into the U.S. every single year, and that's just to me that's just insane for for the time period. I I guess I never really thought that how bad the heroin problem was even back then. Yeah, I mean, it was its own thing. People were dying on the streets, I think, in a sense. Um, yeah, wow. I had no, but even that statistic, I had no idea of like, the level of, of the heroin use. Yeah, so that, that's kind of like the backstory of how they got into this country. And then uh, it was, you know, kind of led from the French side. It was led by uh, uh, basically another type of godfather. His name was Jean Gihan. And he was essentially the villain Alan Charnay in the movie that is Jean Jehan in real life. And he was uh, running the scheme to get it into the States. And and this uh, bust was about 64 pounds of heroin uh, is what they ended up catching and uh, recovering. But um, it was uh, depicted in Robin Moore's 1969 novel and 
which was a big hit, and that focused on the New York police detectives, Eddie Egan, uh, Sonny Grasso, and there's a, there's a whole slew of detectives involved in this case, but they're definitely the ones who headed it up and were uh, morphed into the movie as uh, Popeye Doyle and Buddy Russo. So, and all of them make appearances in the movie playing, you know, side characters as well, which we'll get into. Um, Eddie Egan is the basis for Popeye Doyle and was a pretty much what you see Gene Hackman playing in the film. He was a, you know, a pretty rough character. He was the kind of like the loose cannon of the, uh, you know, police department and would do a lot of what you see Gene Hackman do in the film. And he would, you know, shake bars down and, and, you know, just, he was like a bull. Like he would rush in and, and just throw people up against the wall and empty their pockets. And, uh, you know, the pick your feet in Poughkeepsie, you, you know, gimmick that he did in the movie. He, Eddie Egan actually did that in real life. He, uh, bit. yeah, that was a real bit. And they, they would use, you know, police tactics like that, that would, you know, he, he would, just try to throw the criminal or the person he was interrogating off by accusing them of something they like had, they didn't know what the hell he was talking about. Like, you know, yeah. if you like, I know you're that guy in the hotel who picked his feet in Poughkeepsie. You like, and, and the guy would deny it and deny it. And he said, okay, but you were really here at the, you really robbed this bank in, in Manhattan. Right. And he's like, yeah, I did that, but I wasn't in Poughkeepsie. So <laughs> it was yeah. just a trick to like get them, you know, to drop their guard. Clever. Yeah. But it uh it worked quite quite effectively from the sounds of it. So Yeah. Um there's so you know Eddie Egan also works as a technical advisor on the movie. Uh, Buddy uh, Buddy Russo's uh basis which is Sonny Grasso was a technical advisor on the movie and you know, we'll get into as, you know, their involvement and how much emphasis they, you know, had on everything and, and what was kind of okay and what wasn't okay with uh, the way things were portrayed in the movie. But there was also another uh, cop named Randy Jurgensen who, the name may not sound familiar, but he's he's popped up in a lot of police-related movies, um, you know, as a detective and sometimes as a criminal and and, uh, you know, just a, a great behind-the-scenes person as well. So so there's a number of, you know, real-life characters or who are portrayed just a little bit differently in the movie. Um, the Sal and Angie Boca characters were based on Pasquale Fuca and Barbara Fuca, who basically did the same thing that they do in the movie. They're the ones who uh, Popeye Doyle first kind of catches a glimpse of and Eddie Egan did as well. Um, in a nightclub uh, and just kind of they just seem like they're flashing too much money you know um, yeah I want to say this was at the Copa I'm not a million percent sure about that but you know one night after after uh, you know a day's worth of work uh, Eddie Egan and Sonny Grasso end up going to this you know to the Copa I believe and they see uh, Pasquale Fuca just passing out you know, money left and right. And he's in a fancy suit and he's with a lot of, you know, kind of stereotypical gangster looking people and uh, people that I think they recognized. And, 
it just didn't sit right with them. So, you know, as you see depicted in the movie, they just voluntarily start tailing these guys and, uh, um, you know, seeing where they go, where, where are they going to go tonight after the club and, and, and just tracking them, which I don't know. Is that technically legal? Um, I don't, I, I mean, they, I, I don't think, I, I'm sure cops can just tail people. I mean, anyone can sort of follow people around without it being a, a yeah, harassing I guess. situation. I mean, I, I mean, it's, I wouldn't say it's necessarily moral or ethical or necessarily, but he's not doing anything wrong. And he has his suspicions of his uh, association with these known, you know, drug, drug dudes. And, uh, and now there's this, you know, I think it's like, it stands out that like this new guy is on the scene. Who is this guy? He's he's flashing money. Um, And I can understand why cops who are, you know, if they're in the the narcotics division, they're going to make sure they, they understand who the players are, where they're coming from, who their connections are. Um, Yeah. And like, yeah, but it is funny. It's like they just do it on their own time. They didn't do it on the books. Like they didn't have a case. They, they know they wouldn't be allowed to go do that, so they did it on their own. So, uh, yeah, I mean, there's be, no, there's no evidence of anything. They're just, it's strictly a hunch. Yeah, and I mean, and if if you've got these known guys who are in the drug game, and then you got a new guy in town who's flashing money. You know, you want to get out the story, and you know they, as they investigate, they realize he's kind of like a low. He's the low end of it, everything. He's he's a new player, uh, who's who's no who's basically a nobody at this point. Right the story, yeah, yeah. He's trying to. He's going to use this to really advance his uh, <clears throat> his you know stock, basically. In the in the in real life, it was the Bonanno crime family. So, mm-hmm. got it. Yeah. And this, it's Joel Weinstock is sort of the character who represents different uh, members of the Bonanno crime family and is sort of the head, you know, the head of the family in the movie. So, um, yeah, I don't know. It's uh, at first I was like, I don't, you know, they technically, I don't know if this would be, this is really kosher that they're just, uh, you know, they're again, there's no evidence, but they are just following their hunch and their hunch was absolutely right. So quickly i mean they're they're following them i think for a couple of days and just tailing where they're going and there's you know they follow sal as he you know as he gets you know goes to his the grocery store that he has or the um the The deli sorry it's a deli not a grocery store and as you know he gets changed into his day work clothes and switches cars and that's always you know, anybody switching cars, that's a, that's a bad sign, David. You do that all the time, and I try to get you to stop. Yeah, well, I've got I've got dozens of cars throughout the city, and I never take a single car from one destination to the other. You know that about me. Um, but well, you, you know, like you like cars from 1985, so you, you're driving the Ferrari a lot. But then you'll you know park that, and then you'll pick up the Plymouth Reliant. And uh, take that the rest of the way. So, well, don't give away all my secrets. <laughs> <laughs> I won't say the license plate numbers. I won't say it. At least give me that. Yeah, that's fine. Munch one, munch two. Damn it! I've got to. I got to call the DMV. Yeah. I got. Damn it, S- <laughs> Sally. Sally, the intern. Get get the DMV on the line. All right. I'm gonna take care of that. They're going to be on hold for a while. <laughs> Sally's going to be on hold for a long time. All right. Go on. So what in, uh, 
in Robin Moore's book, it's very, um, the book is, I actually had a tough time with the book because it's really, <clears throat> William Friedkin called it thick-headed. I don't know if I'd call it that, but it's very dense with police procedural uh, material. And it's really just going through all the motions with, uh, you know, Eddie and Sonny and the, and the rest of the, the characters that are there of just exactly what they're doing, who they're following, which was ended up being like more people than in the movie. Uh, sure. You know, what those people are doing every day, what it's like, you know, just tailing them and uh, doing all the surveillance that they're doing and just building this case. So it's <clears throat> it's a much slower build in the book and the book obviously doesn't have some of the more cinematic things that are in the film, like the car chase, which oh, okay. is, you know, the, the staple of the movie, the most famous or, you know, one of the most famous parts about the movie just doesn't exist in the book. So it's a lot more of just going through the motions of everything, which isn't a bad thing. It just doesn't make it as compelling of a story. Um, so it, you know, it definitely made sense to me that, Friedkin and uh, Ernest Tidyman and and uh, the rest of the creative team made those kind of partially drastic changes for the film. What was the book called? <clears throat> the French Connection. Perfect. Yeah, so uh, you can look that one up. But the book came out first, right? Like the book was a thing about like this hum- like this sort of landmark case uh, that yes. had a lot of different players, spanned the entire globe. I mean, I could see why. It could be a little dry if it's written like you know about sort of like this. Uh, this happened, and then this happened, and this is who we followed. So you know, yeah, you don't have a lot of the uh, the action, the or at least like the um, interaction, really. Like things, yeah. the, the conflict isn't there. It's really just who are the players, what are they doing, how are they keeping it out of each other's way, um, or whatever. So yeah, I mean you know, so when you gotta take it to Hollywood, you gotta fictionalize some stuff, make it a little more compelling or interesting for the audience um while keeping the sort of the core of the story there well yeah not only like as you see through the investigation in the book that you know they don't want the small fish they want to go for the biggest fish they can get so it just took time to kind of figure out who you know they they knew pretty quickly these guys are in the drug business but like where where are they getting it from and how big is that you know how big can they get this thing and and that's where they want to, you know, pounce when the time is right to get everybody. Yeah. Um, so the investigation, when I think from the fall of 1961 and the bust was uh, in early 1962. So it was, you know, it was a few months that this was going on. It was um, in the movie. It feels like it's maybe a few weeks, maybe a little bit longer than that. But um, it's a little hard to tell the timeline. But. Well, on my on my fresh viewing of it, um, the entire investigation seemed to be going two months be- before they were they were shut down. That things led to nothing. So uh, before the big chase, so they 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 right. were marking these guys for a while, tracking a lot <clears throat> of stuff, but couldn't. There was no case to build. So yeah, in the movie, it's the the car chase that uh, reopens everything. Yeah. Because, yeah, um, basically Hackman was going to get assassinated. <laughs> yeah. So it's crazy. Yeah. I, for, I actually forgot about that part of the, you know, the beginning part of it with the sniper. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's Nicole, the whole thing uh, off. Yeah. Yeah. 
And 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 I didn't read the book, but is that in, at all like? Did they go after the cops at all? Any of these? No, cops? no, okay. no. So that was a, you that couldn't. Was a I mean, it was just. It's never a good idea to go after cops. Not in New Unless, York. I'll like, tell you what. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and back then New York was a lot more of a rough place in the seventies and eighties. Um, it's not necessarily the New York that is. Uh, of today, which is a lot more cleaned up. I mean, it's a city, so of course there's going to be crime, but um, it was it was a dangerous place back then. Yeah, I mean, we saw a lot of of 70s New York that just cannot exist today. You know, you had burned out lots and and lots of vacant areas. And um, there were it's funny, like the character of New York is quite a, a a thing here. I mean, I think we spend a lot of time in Brooklyn, but yeah, there's not there's not one major chain store featured on the storefront, <laughs> right? Like, I mean, it's it's all the local shops and bodegas and diners and yep. all that stuff. It's all mm. the local businesses. And um, if if you look at it from a modern perspective, you're like, this is a little, this is weird. This is like this doesn't even make sense in a sense where any movie that would take place in New York city, you're gonna, you're definitely going to see the M and M store. I mean, that's happening, right? <laughs> there's no way you don't see the M and M store. <laughs> there's like, there's no way you don't see a coffee shop and a Starbucks yeah. and uh, you know, yeah. a bank. And yeah, this is, um, you know, it's still, this is before chain stores took over everything. And, and yeah. this is, you know, the way New York was and, yeah. It's you know it's a real it's a movie that's like out in the streets you know it was it was filmed you know really like there was no set construction on this movie it was all locations all practical locations yeah, uh, yeah. they they didn't have the budget for it I love I love like street movies I love you know movies like this and uh, Forty Eight Hours and The Driver which we covered uh, last year which you can find in our archives at www.reconcinemation.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, God, what other ones? Uh, Thief and even a modern movie like Drive, you know, is all it just feels like it's out there in the in the city, you know. Yeah, absolutely. It's got that. It's it's got that lived in gritty feel. It's it's a yeah. real place. It's a they're all real places, especially like when they're driving in the city. You get and you get a lot of like B roll in a sense of uh you know just the streets they're on things like that where you're not even seeing the main characters but like you get the a sense of the neighborhood and uh and then when you're following your characters you're seeing just so many cars and so many people in the background so much like activity it's a it's a living breathing town um which new york is always portrayed as but it's um it seems very loose seems very like dirty and kind of um and and, gritty and and gritty gritty. 70s film but like you know these cops are running around doing all this stuff these criminals are running around doing all this stuff and it's like there's some there's a a whole population that has no awareness of this storyline that's happening you know around them it's kind of cool well and part of that is which we'll talk about in a little bit but that's uh is how they shot it so oh okay (laughs) so some of these people were real people and did not know what was going on. So uh, that was uh, that was genuine. I hope the woman with the baby carriage was not a extra who or just a random person who was murdered <laughs> that, from a. That shot. was 
That was one of the oh yeah yeah the sniper shot one yeah <laughs> yeah I hope I hope she wasn't just snipe snipered. <laughs> no, they used uh, and, real bullets, and uh, you know yeah, it just happened. She it. got in the they, way. She got in the way. They had to make. They had to be authentic. It's got to be real. So yeah, that's pretty crazy. The things so you can get the, away with back in the seventies. <laughs> How are there not oh, more the force 70s. killings? <laughs> <laughs> oh, excuse me. So the uh, the book comes out uh, 1969, kind of recapping all of this. Uh, very successful. Immediately, uh, the producer, Phil D'Antoni, uh, gets the rights to it and starts uh, working with William Friedkin, who was a very young, up-and-coming director at the time, uh, starting to get screenwriters to come aboard. I think Alex Jacobs was one of the... Uh, who wrote Point Blank, was one of the original writers. And then the person who wrote uh, They Shoot Horses, Don't They, did a couple of drafts of it. And it just, it wasn't really coming together. And there was lots of problems. Um, William Friedkin was, a, you know, he'd done a few movies, a movie called The Birthday Party. Nothing that really was, nothing to really write home about, let's say. Uh, he was living with, uh, Howard Hawks's daughter at the time, and Hawks had told him, you know, he asked Hawks if he had seen any of his movies, and Howard Hawks was like, yeah, they're all terrible. Oh, jeez. <laughs> so, he's like, if you want to do something, do a chase movie and do it better than anybody's ever done it. So oh, wow. that that kind of kicked Friedkin in the ass, and uh, Bullet had just come out in 1968, and he kind of used that as a blueprint for this movie of like, okay, Bullet is this amazing police detective movie. I'm going to take that to the next level. And wow. and he did. I mean, Bullet has <clears throat> one of the top car chase sequences of all time. Have you seen Bullet? Uh, I've seen bits of Bullet, but not, not I couldn't. I couldn't remember there. if I, I made you watch that or not. But uh, No, that, that wasn't one of your forced viewings we will we will It'll yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah i, I want to see i've been meaning to see bullet for like 30 years <laughs> in fact <Maybe> 20 <laughs> book the book the the screening room for immediately after recording this okay all right i'm gonna type it yeah. in the computer uh, guess what it's booked because there's nobody else on the studio <laughs> lot right now so okay well i want to <clears> make sure <throat> no one goes in there to watch like the spongebob movie <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, William Friedkin though grew up uh, in Chicago. Uh, he was born to Jewish Ukrainian immigrant parents, and he was—he didn't really get into film till he was. I think he said he was about twenty when he really started to get into it, and was inspired by Citizen Kane and Psycho and Wages of Fear, which is a movie he'd end up remaking and would sort of almost kill his career. Uh, but he ended up becoming one of the top directors of the 70s if you look at you know who those top guys were it was it was Friedkin and Coppola and Scorsese and Peter Bogdanovich and you know part of what I I love so much about these 70s films is they just had so much creative freedom the studio system had changed so much and was really taken over by young guys like Burt Schneider and who were who were just you know, giving the directors a lot more authority than they had been given previously. I mean, mm-hmm. of course, you'd have certain directors like Howard Hawks and John Ford who would, and Hitchcock who always had creative control over their projects. But now it was like, 
a lot more creative freedom was being given to these guys and uh, the studios were not as controlling as they they had been so you know these these a lot more uh, you know artistic uh you know things were being done and chances were being taken and Friedkin's movies were really fantastic. I mean, from French Connection to The Exorcist, and then you've got Sorcerer uh, at the end, which is kind of the demise of Friedkin and just excess at at its height. And oh, interesting. You know, yeah, it's a. I mean, we'll we'll do we'll do a whole look at Sorcerer, but it was the movie where he just lost. He went over budget, over schedule. Everything was crazy. Nothing was working. Sets were ruined, you know. It was it was just an insane uh, movie that he was trying to do. But it was a remake of this movie that he had watched uh, in his younger days called *The Wages of Fear*, which is fant- fantastic, fantastic uh, foreign film. So, if you haven't seen that, check it out. It's a I think Criterion's got it. Call up the Criterion folks. Get that yeah, one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but Friedkin started directing you know, TV episodes and documentaries. Uh, he had done, uh, God, what did he done? He'd done uh, some Alfred Hitchcock, uh, some episodes, I believe, and just was coming up through there and was starting to make a name for himself. But uh, so this was, you know, coming at the right time for him. And Fox had uh, it was pitched. Friedkin and D'Antoni pitched pitched it to Fox and uh, Zanuck and Brown, who were running the studio at, at the time and were in charge of... Uh, they ended up moving to Universal, but they had uh, been in charge later on for The Sting and, and Jaws, which we talked about in our Jaws episode. Uh, so, But really great executives, uh, studio executives, who, who had a great creative eye as well. They apparently had about two, $1.8, $2 million. Actually, sorry, it was $1.5 million set aside. And they said, if you can make this, if you can make this movie, you know, here's, this is your budget, but you got to stay in this, in, in budget here. And uh-huh. I think by the end, they, they had gone over about 300000 So I think the final budget was about one8 Ooh. So less than two mil in the <clears throat> se- in 70s. Uh, yeah, seventy-one probably ish, right? To film it, uh, yeah, which is yeah. still you know a, f- a fair amount today, but um, mm-hmm. you know they but they had to do it conservatively and they had to be cautious about how they made this movie and and yeah. uh, you know what this story was going to be. So, but using all the New York exteriors was a good way of of you know getting the most bang for your buck. Yeah, set construction you... is super expensive, so yeah this was a better way to do it for him. So you just do natural areas, <clears throat> natural locations, uh, a lot of exteriors, uh, and you don't, probably not a lot of set dressing. You know, you, 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 you spruce some things up, but if you're out on the streets of New York, you don't, there, there's nothing to dress. You just shoot it. Well, yeah, and it's set in the film. It's set present day. It's not, you know, they're not yeah. trying to period it by about 10 years, so... It, yeah, it's you know it it was what it was. I mean, it, it was it looks exactly how it really was back then. Yeah, I wanted to so, like start googling some of these storefronts. Like, is there is there <clears> any <throat> chance like this thing exists? And I I'm curious if anything we ever saw on the film like exists at all in some form. You know, I'm sure like physical buildings, obviously, but like any of the stores or restaurants or 
all that. I mean, I'm sure it's probably less than 1% of what we saw probably exists today. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of it's changed. I mean, I grew up uh, in in areas... I wasn't down in Brooklyn, but uh, my dad had a store in Mount Vernon, uh, which is right near you know the Bronx and Yonkers, where I had a lot of family. So I, I spent a lot of time in areas that looked like this. I mean, it looked exactly how uh, yeah. the French Connection looks. My dad's store, there was... <laughs> Next to it, there was this, like, it was a cafe, but they called it a luncheonette, which was always a word that just stuck out in my head. That's such an old school word. You don't see that word anymore. Nope. No, that's so old school. Oh, my gosh. I remember just being a little kid, like, what does that word even mean? What is a luncheonette? It's a luncheonette. It's a a place for lunch, but it's Yeah, you go there for lunch and, like, a quick lunch. It's not like a restaurant, but it is. Yeah. But it was that. It was my dad's store. It was Joe's Pizza on the other side of it. It was uh, it was a good good place back then, but got a little rough in the 90s. So while all this is going on with Friedkin and the book and the, the script being written, where is where on earth is our good friend Gene Hackman during all this? David, what's he doing in the in the late 60s? Late 60s? Yeah, he's busy. He's working on a well, you mean he did the Bonnie and Clyde, right? Like that was like his big thing, right? And he's just he's acting yeah, he, left and right. Yeah, not not really a huge amount. I mean, he's kind of bopping around and getting bit parts. And uh, Bonnie and Clyde was, I think, his first major role in a movie. Um, in yeah. a major movie, uh, he was acting in the. He was actually in California, uh, acting at the uh, Pasadena Playhouse. And he had become uh, really good friends with Dustin Hoffman and Robert Duvall. And they were all kind of acting together in the mid-60s and were really, believe it or not, very unsuccessful. And they were voted uh, least likely to succeed and in the acting business. And they would get, amongst their peers, they got the lowest acting scores of their, uh, of their class, and uh, which is unbelievable that... Their teacher was definitely trying to persuade them to get out of acting and um, not pursue it and that they would never amount to anything. They would have won a so, lot of Razzies is what you're saying. A lot they of, would, a yeah, lot. apparently. I, I mean, I don't know if I believe that, but uh, that's the way they saw it back then. Wow. They ended up moving, moving to New York and living together. You know, I think the two of the three would live together and they would kind of rotate who was living where. But... Uh, once he moved to New York, Hackman was waiting tables on the side like so many other actors and actually waited on his acting teacher from the Pasadena Playhouse who, again, reminded him that he was a loser and that he wouldn't... He said, see, I told you you wouldn't amount to anything. And that is uh, what kicked Hackman in the ass to motivate him to uh, make it work. And he certainly did. Wow, holy shit. <laughs> Good for him. So he eventually yeah, he started getting uh, some some bit parts in in TV roles and uh, a show called The Invaders and he was bouncing around apparently he was very close to nailing the lead uh, or not the lead but the father in The Brady Bunch. Oh my gosh. That would be something. Can you Wow. Can you Gene see Hackman? Gene Hackman as Mike Brady? I can. I can, and I love it. <laughs> <laughs> that would 
would be insane to me. I just I could only see him yelling at the Brady kids. I know. <laughs> just like aggressively in their face about everything. He would be more like a Norman Dale uh, from Hoosiers if he was yeah. in the Brady Bunch. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so he ends up, you know, once he bounces out of TV, he gets Bonnie and Clyde. He gets another role in Downhill Racer and uh, is is known in the business. He just hadn't had really that breakout role. Um, Friedkin, in the meantime, is going through the whole casting process and... You know, they wanted between Friedkin and Fox, they wanted a number of different actors. Of course, he wanted the great Paul Newman as the uh, as the Popeye Doyle character. Uh, Steve McQueen. Both of those guys were too expensive. They couldn't afford them for the movie and they weren't willing to take pay cuts for it at the time. Yeah. Uh, Plus McQueen. I mean, I think Newman would have been great, but. Uh, all these guys would have been great, but McQueen had just done Bullet and didn't want to do another cop movie so closely after having done such a successful one. Yeah, uh, Jackie Gleason was another uh, person who was up for it, but that didn't that didn't work out either. Uh, Peter Boyle was um, another actor who they wanted, uh, who had just done a movie called Joe. Have you ever seen Joe? Have you heard about this movie? No, I don't think I know Joe. He's like a vigilante, racist, anti-hippie uh, guy and, and who takes it upon himself to like do some anti-hippie vigilante justice. So I'm in. I'm in. I'm going to rent that tomorrow. He, he was once he, he wanted to do the film. And then once he read the script, he saw that Popeye Doyle was a similar character, not quite as you know crazy as Joe is, but uh you know, he so he backed out and just didn't want to play. He he would he thought he was going to get typecast as that kind of role if he had done the French Connection. So that's uh, fair. Yeah, they uh, they wanted Charles Bronson and then uh, Rod Taylor, who was in the Time Machine in the early '60s, and he was in The Birds with Hitchcock. Uh, really wanted the role, was really pushing pushing it, but. Um, somehow the studio found Hackman and, and they liked the idea of an unknown and uh, getting a fresh face in there. And, uh, you know, Hackman met with Friedkin and eventually they, you know, once all these other people kind of didn't work out uh, against Friedkin's wishes, they, uh, they hired Hackman and he was, he was set to start, but Friedkin did not, he was like 10th choice for Friedkin. Hmm. Wow, so the fact that it went all the way down that list, you know, that he finally nailed the role, that's pretty amazing. Yeah, it was just, I guess it was sort of fate, you know, the one reason or another all these guys backed out or wouldn't do it or wouldn't do it for the money, and uh, it all kind of landed on Hackman, and it was, it was uh, I think it was definitely meant to be. How about that? Uh, Roy Scheider, who uh, plays Buddy Russo based on, on Sonny Grasso, was uh, was mostly doing plays at this point and had also had you know a couple of small roles. He was in Clute the same year in 1971, uh, but was seen by the casting director. And when he went into audition, he he felt like it wasn't going well, and he kind of flipped out and and left the like stormed out of the audition. And oh, wow! It was it was that that actually turned Friedkin onto him. 
Uh, really? So like his that? his freak out and just storming out was like, that's the guy. That's the guy I want for this role. <laughs> sure, yeah. He wow. wanted, you know, he wanted somebody with passion and who could, uh, you know, get fired up in these scenes. It's such an emotional, you know, high intensity movie. Yeah, absolutely. And then the other <clears throat> main actor was Fernando Ray, who uh, was really only got cast by coincidence. Uh, he was had a brief role in this film, Belle du Jour, and Friedkin said, I want the guy from Belle du Jour, except he didn't mean Fernando Ray. He meant a different actor. And then when the <laughs> casting directors brought Ray in and essentially hired him, that's when Friedman was like, not him. That wasn't the guy I wanted, but they had already uh, hired him. They already <laughs> hired him, and they were like, well, yeah. we'll take him. <laughs> I mean, Friedkin, like, lost it. Friedkin, William Friedkin has a, had, or at least had back then, a super hot temper was, you know, he didn't pull any punches. He was very intense with people. It was very difficult to work with, and uh, he, you know, would lose it on people. And if you quit, you quit, or you hung on there and, tried to take it and he had very uh abrasive relationships with his actors and i think you know now looking back on it it's like they sort of all look back and laugh but it was a it was a difficult shoot and and hackman had a had a tough time friedkin was like a more angry sort of stanley kubrick Ugh, (laughs) that sounds horrible well he would do you know take after take and he would emotionally manipulate his actors to get them where he wanted them and a lot of directors did that he would you know he would go up he was you know i I think today he'd be categorized as a yeller and screamer which isn't so great but he certainly created some of the most memorable films of the 70s and you know got you know so many award uh, oscars and so many different awards for this the exorcist and and others, yeah. but uh, yeah, 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 it's fine as long as he didn't hit his actors. I guess it's fine. I don't know, <laughs> that sounds fine. Well, we'll save that for when we get to The Exorcist. Oh, Jesus Christ! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's uh, we'll, we'll get there, but <laughs> uh, the film was uh, shot by uh, by Owen Roisman, and it was only his second film. He had he was another newcomer, um. He would he would go on to do The Exorcist with Friedkin and uh, the Taking of Pelham One Two Three Three Days of the Condor Network. So some of the best uh, films of the seventies were shot by Owen Roisman, but he really nails that you know the the grittiest of the gritty seventies movies were all his. Ah, oh well, that's great. Well, we're getting we're getting a young fresh talent here. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, a, a new, young new director, a young DP, uh, a fresh-faced Gene Hackman, Roy Scheider. So it's all, you know, just this this new wave of Hollywood that was just coming in that was taking over everything and so became so dominant. But this is kind of the beginning of all these guys' careers. Yeah, 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 yeah. <clears throat> but Ro- Roisman and Friedkin really went for this, they call it an induced documentary style so it was, I mean, it was the total naturalism, realism that they were going for with their, you know, the way they lit the movie, the way they, uh, the way the camera moved. And the, like we were talking about, and you were saying earlier, the way they captured the city, it was, I mean, it, 
they really wanted a snapshot of that time. And they got it. <laughs> and they got it. <laughs> and they got it. No, but I mean, it's very uh, unique. It's very unique. If you, you know, if you're not used to New York in the 70s, you didn't grow up there. You don't know. You didn't see all these movies and all that. What a visual uh, that you got. Uh, all those cars, those big boats, those those two vehicles all yeah, over those, the town. Those cars were like, they just look so heavy with that. Oh, like yeah. they're long and big and yeah, yeah I mean, we, we, we used to call them boats too. It was, uh, yep. they don't make them like that anymore. They do not. I and they were like tanks. <laughs> Your Prius. Get my Prius. It's tiny. It gets me where I want to go and it weighs a thousand pounds. I just prefer the smart car. Oh, that's even better. It's 300 pounds. It can fit into any parking spot. Yep. <laughs> as long as it can plug in. I know. I need that, I need that plug-in spot. <laughs> um, they, uh, so, you know, while they shot this, Eddie Egan and Sonny Grasso and Randy Jurgensen were all technical advisors on the movie. They had smaller roles. Eddie Egan plays the commander, who's probably the biggest part of those three guys. Uh, Sonny Grasso, you see as the one of the uh, two federal agents that get teamed up with uh, with Popeye and Russo, um, you know, about halfway through the film, and they you know expand the investigation. But Sonny Grasso is the one who you know follows uh, Charnier and uh, Boca to Washington, and is kind of tracking them when they take the train to Washington and make their final kind of agreement. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he'd also be, you know, Sonny Grasso was a really important, and Randy Jurgensen were were both, uh, you know, important people in the film business that they would be technical advisors for The Godfather and Cruising and so many other police-related films. I think Maniac, uh, you know, the uh, that horror Cop? movie Maniac. Not Maniac Cop. <laughs> <laughs> Maniac with Joe Spinell, the, the oh, kind of slasher movie. But, um, you know, a lot of just crime-related movies they had a hand in and were uh, a big part of it. And and Eddie Egan was the technical advisor for Mannix, I believe. I think the whole run through that show, which was, uh, you know, it referred to in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood last year. Sure. <clears throat> But they are, uh, they're working heavily with Friedkin, and they spent, Friedkin spent weeks with them going out on bus and uh, watching what they do and studying what they did. And they would take him to, like, the roughest parts of New York, and um, they called it the shooting gallery. They would take him to this, you know, area where, where people would go and shoot up heroin and get high and... Uh, Friedkin, and it was apparently only like five blocks from where Friedkin actually lived, which was this, you know, nice part of New York that within five blocks, there was already these, you know, rundown neighborhoods that he didn't even know existed. Hmm. These things that, yeah. Uh, and listen, I, I, you know, I lived in Philly in the, in the nineties, uh, for a little bit, there would be, depending on where you were, if you walked a couple blocks, You'd be a nice, a nice area, and then you'd be like literally told, torn down, like condemned buildings, and then two more blocks later, 
looks great. Full, you know, nice gentrified yeah. houses and stuff. I mean, it's, that doesn't compare to you know New York in the '60s and '70s, but it's just sort of like you know these th- these things pop up. The the it's part of the the area, the neighborhoods. They they are very delineated. Um, yeah, it makes a. That's uh, interesting that you'd be that close to all that action. Yeah, and I have no idea. <laughs> yeah. Um. But yeah, he went out and like really studied these guys and figured out who he wanted uh, Popeye and and Cloudy to, to what their characters to be. And if you look at you know Gene Hackman with his pork pie hat and his overcoat, and you look at early pictures of Eddie Egan, I mean they look identical. Oh really? So he's being very Egan wore the same hat and yeah. And they did they did a you know they basically did the good cop bad cop that. You know, Egan was the the showman, and he would he had all the bravado, and would um, you know lead a lot of these raids, and uh, would and so he would kind of be the the, uh, the bad cop usually, and uh, Sonny Grasso would uh, would be the good cop who would kind of clean up and play nice, and sometimes get the get the confession after after Egan had sort of roughed him up and. And that was uh, basically, as you see in the opening sequence with with these guys, uh, the Christmas Christmas chase. Uh, this is a Christmas film, by the way, as evidenced by that opening scene. Wait, that was that was taking place during Christmas. <laughs> I don't. Is that right? Well, when when uh, Popeye is dressed up as Santa and they chase that guy down uh, oh, the alley, and to me, it's a Christmas I thought movie. that that could have been any time of year. <laughs> That's it. That's any. <laughs> Everyone loves Santa Claus. <laughs> but right, you see fine. them kind of play a, you know, good cop, bad cop routine there a little bit. You, you got to look closely for it. But I think you can see uh, Roy Shatter like laughing a little bit at what. Yeah. He was, la- uh, yeah. He was walking away and laughing during certain <laughs> certain moments. Yeah. <laughs> it's like so the, the suspect wouldn't see. Yeah, but that was stuff that they really did, and and there's pictures. I mean, there's pictures of Egan dressed up as Santa from from doing the exact same thing. So they would take certain stories that he told Friedkin and really work that into the movie, and uh, and then once they cast Hackman and Scheider, you know, they did the same thing. They went out on busts and raids, and you know, worked with them for I th- I, I think it was about three weeks. They wow. and Egan would have Hackman like make arrests. Oh really? Like put yeah. cuffs on guys? And yeah, and he would. Shit. And Hackman was like, you know, they're really opposite ends. They they didn't always get along. Hackman was a, a liberal, and and Eddie Egan would would be your typical conservative, and not necessarily doing things by the book. And Hackman was not comfortable doing what Egan was sort of forcing him to do. And then. Uh, Sonny Grasso would come in and just be like, "No, no, it's fine. It's okay. Here, we're we're gonna take care of it. It's all good. Just just do what he says." <laughs> I love that. That's uh, <laughs> yeah. that's amazing. But they did, uh, and they, they didn't really like. They didn't really get along during a lot of the making of the movie, and uh, you know, freaking Hackman would get really frustrated, and they actually shot that uh, that Christmas chase first and they shot it like they did like 27 takes or something and it just wasn't it wasn't done right and it wasn't the emotions weren't there the whole scene didn't work so they finally went back to it at the end after the whole filming and Hackman was 
really at the end of his rope with Friedkin and Egan and just the whole tired of filming, you know, outside in the cold New York winter uh, every day, every day and night. So they reshot it and he nailed it and he was so oh, wow. pissed off. He was he was ready to do that scene again. He was very so, aggressive in that scene. I can see that. Totally. He <laughs> that, was that kind of thing. He was like, I'm done with this movie. But <laughs> <laughs> So Friedkin wanted, you know, the Popeye Doyle character to be as as rough as possible. And there was a big reaction in, to his, let's just say, his colorful language. Mm. He uses the N-word a couple of times and uh, yeah. another couple of racist, uh, you know, he he admitted that, that Popeye Doyle probably is a racist. Right. Yeah, probably. Uh, and Hackman had a hard time with with that language, and uh, but it it made its point that that Doyle was wasn't a by the book guy, and in order to to really break this case, he had to operate out of those circumstances, and you know part of that the language was part of that, unfortunately. Sure, and um, also a motivator for what he was doing out there. Yeah, <laughs> the. What part of what is so great about this character is how intense his obsession is with with busting these guys, with the whole ring, with Boca and Charnier, and especially once he realizes who Charnier is. Yeah, there's a uh, deleted scene where Popeye, you know, is following Charnier. They, I really like this that that you know the the three officers who are following Charnier kind of switching on and off so that they don't get eyeballed, you know. Oh um, yeah, as the initial him. the initial tracking of of Sal and Chanier and all that it's, it's so fantastic. It's so well done. It's, it's so interesting that like they're they they tag team the whole time, making sure they're not trying to be made and all of that. And you know, if, if, in the beginning, you don't realize that like Hackman or, or Doyle is so obsessed. Like you can sort of read that like he wants to get the bad guys. He wants to know what's going on. Um, so it's, it's the start of these things where he is, uh, you know, he, you could just think, oh, he was just a cop doing his job. He's the narcotics guy. He's trying to get the drugs off the streets. He wants to know what these guys are all about. Um, but the, it's like the obsession just ramps up and continues, uh, to dominate everything he does. Um, everything we see of him in the movie is that obsession. Yeah, I mean, he doesn't. It, it, we don't really know anything about his personal life. It doesn't seem like he really has a personal life. We see his apartment one time, and it's a mess. And uh, we know he drinks a lot when he's off duty. But it's like he's living the cases. Yeah, I mean, like, and well, like the the movie's very purposeful about like not giving him that story. Like, we don't know why he's obsessed. We don't know why we call him Popeye. We don't know about the case of the that led to a cop's death. Like. There's just there's a lot of these things that color him um, for the audience, but we you know yeah he he we see him um, see a pretty girl and you know sort of just end up hooking up with her and the next morning of that but like don't, we don't even know how that happens it's it's very much like we're we're living him in the life of the case and that's it. Yeah, I, I I like a lot of the little subtle details that they worked into of of you know his attraction to girls with boots. Oh, if you right. notice that every girl he hits on 
or is watching like she's she's in boots yeah i guess so yeah he did ask that one girl can i ask you about your boots and then yeah. the girl the girl on the bike the, on the bike yeah yeah had the boots yeah well you yeah know, we all a... have our things yeah <laughs> hey to each his own yeah um but yeah, and then you know the name Popeye. They would uh, a judge apparently called uh, Popeye, or he. I think a judge gave Eddie Egan the, the nickname Popeye because he was always on the lookout for trouble. He was popping over here, popping over there, just always looking for someone to bust. Uh, okay. So that yeah. that's the uh, origin. It has nothing to do with the cartoon character Popeye, which I know right. you were looking for that connect. You thought that was the French connection, right? I thought he, I thought he was eating a lot of spinach, which is famously a French vegetable. And, you uh, thought he, that this was, <laughs> you thought this was the origin story of of how Popeye became a sailor. <laughs> right. I thought he was going to join the navy after this. I don't know. <laughs> Didn't happen. Um, but uh, Hackman is just so good at playing obsessed characters. Um, you know, I think even you see it a little bit, and you definitely see it in Night Moves. You see it in Hoosiers. You see it in Mississippi Burning. That you know these characters that are just, you know, really like um, have one one track mind, and they have to like achieve this goal. Yeah, and uh, he's so believable at it. It was a great uh, a trait that he was really excellent at portraying. So. Um, well, and that's, you know, I mean, think of, like, the way you think of, like, an obsessive character, like, maybe in, say, more modern movies, where there's got to be, they ha- they, they're they trying to, like, channel in so much backstory or damage to, like, why they might be obsessed over something, you know, and, like, that they're maybe a little, like, uh, unhinged, a little crazy, all that, and it's, like, you know, we all have our own obsessions or, you know, or at least things that, that take our more of our attention than not. And Hackman's that kind of guy that's like when he's portraying someone who's got those things, he's not overdoing it. He's not chewing the scenery. He is. And he's, it's just part of who he is. Like we all Mm -hmm. have our vices, which, you know, Doyle has, he has, he has booze, you know, he has he's got women supposedly probably like it seems like it'd be like that's his life is like if he's not on the case it's booze and women i mean we see him waking up in a bar in his neighborhood um as the sun's coming up so that's that's to inform you of what his typical behavior is you know they don't they're not showing it as like this is aberrant this is no this is typical so you know and i think it's it's like grounded in reality the way he performs these like well this is like the things that i I obsessed with so the thing that gets him going is his work and uh he doesn't seem that out of place i mean he annoys his his office his superiors and he's obviously like singularly focused which bugs them but he doesn't seem like he's like a crazy person he just seems like he's just a little much like just in over his head all the time yeah well he's definitely getting into like deep water with all of his cases it seems like yeah he's causing trouble as he's going deeper <clears throat> Um, what are your uh, okay? Let's besides the car chase. What are what's a couple of scenes that you really enjoyed in the film? Um, I mean, it's like it, I think it's like those early on scenes where he's starting to track Sal and Shania, and um, where 
it's very subtle, very like light touch. And he's out in the cold and he's, and he's for minutes at a time out in the cold watching these guys, you know, have dinner together and all that, where they're doing, they're having fancy meals and fancy desserts and all that. And he's eating a slice of pizza and, and crummy coffee. Yeah. And it's just like, it doesn't matter. Or he's up until four in the morning or it's, you know, whatever time it is, we're going to be here all night. Like so much in like so many like little things like that, like that lets me understand him as a character without mm-hmm. it being like, like, I don't know, over dramatic or like, um, I don't know, just like too caricature. Like it's, it seems all very real. So, um, like, yeah, just seeing him sort of in those situations and then not apologizing for anything. So, and he gets pissed off when people accuse him of like leading to his other officer's death and all that. Yeah. Uh, I just, uh, like, I don't necessarily like Doyle, but I, I get Doyle or at least like, I don't know. I, I, yeah, I think I think that's a good way to put it. I mean, I, I think you yeah. can understand him. You may yeah. not like him, but I think you can understand where he's coming from and w- what he's after. Yeah, but like, were there like specific moments that like just got like that you that you like? Uh, I like the well. I think the cat and mouse uh, chase with uh, not the, necessarily the car chase, but with uh, Charnay. Where he tracks him down to the subway, I, I love oh. that whole sequence. Yeah, that was so good. Like, and I, you didn't. There, was, I don't think there's ever an indication that Shania was onto him. Basically, until you got to the subway, but you weren't sure. You know, I mean, he Doyle says it earlier. Like, he lives on the fourth floor of the, or he's staying at the fourth floor of a hotel, but he went to six, so he's onto me. Um, which doesn't deter him from following him. So. You know, you would think that he would back off, but it, there's his obsessiveness. And Chanier, who's older than him, um, very wealthy, so very, like, successful in what he does. You know, Chanier is always a step ahead of him. Um, and, uh, yeah, the cat and mouse. Ugh, I was rooting for Chanier by the end. <laughs> I loved it. <laughs> it was, like, get, get out of there. You got him. Yeah. You're going to outsmart him. It was great. Yeah, uh, it was just the pacing of it, the way it's cut together is so brilliantly done. And, and uh, yeah, just that he's, again, he's is he in, it, in over his head with Charnay? Is Charnay going to continue to outsmart him? And then he's, he's sort of, you know, he's mocking him by the end of it. Yeah, that little wave through the, the subway car. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, which pays off, you know, one of the last shots of the movie. So Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and then that that's really, you know, Popeye losing him in the subway there really pushes him as if he wasn't pushed far enough already really drives him his obsession meter up like up to 11 definitely 11 way up to 11 (laughs) (laughs) Um, there was uh, a couple other you know tidbits about the movies the rumor is that in the scene where they were testing the heroin in the hotel room that that was according to Friedkin that that was real heroin. <laughs> what? <laughs> Things Why? you couldn't do today. <laughs> Why the fuck? He's like, we, yeah, like the the obsessive director, like you know, all, trying to get that authenticity and like messing with yep. people. Like, yeah, okay, yeah, great. Yes. We'll get, we'll get. So, like, who did he? Who did he ask to get him heroin to make sure that they? Like, oh, I'm sure it could have been anybody. 
Yeah, I mean, it was flowing through the streets, but <laughs> I, you know, I don't know. Friedkin said it. I don't know if that's true because, again, if if Eddie Egan and Grasso are on the set, uh, you know, advising this, I can't imagine they would have been okay with that. I don't know. I mean, they don't play by the rules, you know. And if it's just a little bit of hair, it's a movie, you know. Someone's gonna. Yeah, I mean, who and also, you know, they may not have actually been. Those aren't police scenes so they may not have been on set that for that scene so i don't know yeah um re-watching this though uh the chemist um is that is that john mulaney from if, do you know john mulaney <laughs> like, like the, the comedian the comedi- yeah that's that's yeah. john mulaney that's john mulaney <laughs> that guy yeah he he time traveled yes that's john mulaney in a wig like he clearly <laughs> There's there's great in, there's certain intonations, certain accent, and a certain look about the way he lo- uh, smiles. I was like, that's John Mulaney in another time. I'm when this episode comes out, I will be I will be tweeting to John Mulaney that I enjoyed his performance. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he appreciated it. <laughs> so if you're casting this movie now, you would cast John Mulaney as the the drug dealer. Yeah, the drug I mean, the, tester. The drug tester. Patrick McDermott was the original actor. Uh, but Mulaney's got that vibe, and Mc- Patrick McDermott was also in Joe, so the the chemist. So, as we well, know. apparently that's what he did. So yeah, that's he did, <laughs> he did these things. But uh, no, it's a big fan, a big fan of Mulaney. In this. <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> I I watch didn't it. think of that till you said it, and but now I see it for sure. Watch it again, you'll see. Like when he's the whole thing, <clears throat> he's great. But yeah, no. Um, uh, I could see, uh, so yeah, real drugs in the scene. Great, do it, man. Crazy, whatever you, crazy. You got to do. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the seventies. Uh, the so a lot of this film we were talking about earlier, they um, didn't necessarily get permits for location filming for a lot of these scenes. They uh, mm. stole a lot of shots. Uh, a lot of these shots where you see like Gene Hackman across the street. Um, you know, it's just. You know, the camera operator and the camera, you know, across and the actors across from them. And, and they were just grabbing whatever shots they could, wow. stealing them left and right. I mean, this is it would be a huge budget, part of the budget to, you know, pay for all these extras and, you know, hundreds of extras on the streets and all the cars. And uh, it'd be easier to just, you know what, run out there with a camera and action, you know. Yep. Yep. Well, it worked. <clears throat> um, a lot a, of the... Get, go ahead. Uh, you didn't get a lot of sense of like the, the people of New York, but there were a lot of bodies. So it, I think they, they, they knew what they were doing in this guerrilla style uh, of all that. So, you know, there's not a lot of like people's faces necessarily or like right. very, very specific, you know, featuring uh, shots. So the fact that they got away with it, I mean... I don't even think you could you could even try to do this. Even if you got the same kind of shots today, I don't think you could get away with it today. Yeah, I mean they're using a lot of like zoom lens techniques, and because you're either you know with the with Charnay and looking across the street, zooming at Hackman, or vice versa. Yeah. Uh, but they especially did a lot of uh, stolen shots on the. Let's talk about it now. The car chase. Okay. So. Of all the car chase scenes you've seen, where does this rank? Oh, top five. Sure. 
top five Italian job. Yeah. The remake was really good. <laughs> I remember mm-hmm. that one. That was really, um, the, you know, uh, baby driver. Good times. Uh, very modern though. And, um, I mean, yeah, there's plenty of great car chases out there. Blues brothers, uh, a lot of fun. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. It's up there. It's 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 you can see it as a inspiration for for films for the for the next. Oh yeah, years. I mean, well, Bullet, you know, Bullet is the classic car chase scene. Uh, was the most famous car chase sequence. This, yeah, you know, capped it. And uh, I I think for me this is one of my like top two or three for sure. Yeah. Mostly because of the intensity that goes with it. Yeah, the Blues Brothers is fun, and some of the others are technically executed you know really well but the intensity and the the passion that is in this one um through the music and and hackman's performance and everything was is what goes along with the whole package that i I love it i mean i think it's amazing and seeing it in the theater was really really intense oh oh you saw it in the theater yeah i saw this uh a while back in the theater oh very cool yeah no i mean you're you're just in it with him you're you're so cl- it's such a uh, close up shot of him every time. Um, the the danger of it seems very imminent at all times. You see a bunch of fender benders happening, and, and it was they're all real. I mean, they, except you know there was a couple of uh, parts that were staged, like the um, lady pushing the uh, was it the the carriage across the street, right? Right. Yeah. 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 That that was you know that part was staged, but a lot of these shots were done. You know, by with Gene Hackman driving, and actually uh, Bill Hickman, who plays the other federal agent, who's kind of antagonizing Popeye the whole time. Uh, he was a stunt driver and an actor who did the car chase and and bullet as well. And now he was doing. He did all the driving shots where the the cameras mounted to the hood of the car or the you know the front grill of the car. Oh, uh, okay. So all the like really high speed stuff where you don't see Gene Hackman, you know, in at the steering wheel, that was all done by by Hickman. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, I mean, there's and there's so much of that, and it's like the streets are so crowded and busy, and it looks like pure hazard at all times when you're when you're watching it. So, I mean, yeah, it's intense. Yeah, they shot this under the uh, uh, what is now the D train in Bensonhurst. Mm-hmm. Um, and Hackman was driving a Pontiac Le Mans, and they would just get out there and totally filmed it illegally at risk of putting the whole production at risk. And uh, they did it. It took about three weeks to film the entire sequence between the car portion and the train portion. Um, so it took, yeah, it took a long, a, a large part of the shooting schedule just to film this. But it's, cool. I mean, it's the most memorable, intense part of the movie. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad they got their shots in. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, and Hackman, uh, there's a shot where, uh, you know, Hackman's driving and gets T-boned. Yeah. yeah. And that was actually, that was Hackman driving. He got knocked into the trunk of the car in that shot, and amazingly, he was fine. Uh, the car obviously was banged up. But uh, he was he, he was rattled, but not really physically hurt that badly. Um, and the person driving the other car was luckily not hurt 
that badly as well. But they left in, you know, they would do these takes over and over and over, and they would leave in all the little bumps and mistakes that happen and the timing errors. And these are all real pedestrians, or at least most of them are, and real, you know, uh, uh, real drivers on the road that that either Hickman and (laughs) Hickman or Hackman (laughs) are both uh, weaving in and out of. And it's, it's just intense and one of the most... I, especially growing up, I always remember hearing about this sequence and and how you know just crazy it was. Wow, yeah, I mean it 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 doesn't uh, it doesn't surprise me that a lot of the stuff was not you know done the right way or at least by the book. So yeah, it looks it yeah it looks fantastic. I mean, good for them. That's great. <clears throat> Luckily, and no whole... one died. <laughs> yeah, thank God. Uh, the whole chase sequence from the beginning, where where um, uh, Nicole is is striping is striping. That's not a word, mm-hmm. not a word I meant to use. Sniping uh, at Popeye. It's so. I mean, the intensity starts building up there, and and as he's firing these shots down, and and Popeye is you know trying to get up to the rooftop and then get down from the rooftop and chasing him across the train, and. Uh, you know the way Nicole is is panicking on the train and shoots a couple of the transit workers and mm-hmm. uh, the tra- and the train crashes. I mean, <laughs> like you know, Hackman or sorry, Popeye is is chasing this train via a car right underneath the train tracks, mm-hmm. and uh, it's just it's crazy and and finally catches up with him. And then it's the famous shot from the the poster where he ends up executing. Nicole right on the steps. Yeah. I mean, he was injured and then he was at the top of the steps and then he would turn to run and Hackman just blows him away like right in the back and he falls down. I mean, it's, uh, I can't imagine that's police procedure. (laughs) No, it's not. And that was one thing that the, all the police, um, you know, related to the movie reacted to in a huge way that, that, that would never happen, that that was, you know, that was murder. He murdered the guy. The guy was, yes, I mean, he had been shooting at Popeye and he had shot other people and crashed a, a train, but he was unarmed when confronted by police. So there was no reason for him to fire on him or at least, you know, fire in a lethal way at him. Right, yeah. So like that, that that sort of solidifies like where where you see Popeye as a, as a guy, like. yeah, I mean, he's willing to clearly willing to cross the line, and and his obsession just ramps up, you know, doubles at that point. Yeah, what do no, you yeah. um, how do you feel about the end of the movie? Um, the like the very end, like yeah, the whole the I mean, not just the shootout, but you know, the very end sequence. Like. The thing is, I was surprised that the end of the movie had a like a summary, a character summary for like all the main players about what happened. Right. I thought I thought it was going to be a gunshot off screen and credits rolling. Like, and then I would have been like, "Oh yeah, what the hell happened?" Like that that would have been incredible. Um, yeah. The fa- the fact that it's like because <clears throat> I feel like that maybe was that the original intention. It just doesn't. Why even do the the gunshot? Uh, if you're just going to summarize what happened and that everyone lived in a sense, or, you know, everyone who, uh, you know, otherwise lived, 
you know, it shows the sort of miscarriage of justice where the criminals in the story of the movie either get a, get away with it or get off lightly. Um, and it, which kind of punctuates like how almost pointless his obsessiveness is. Like, I get that. It's sort of like, yeah, everybody kind of got away with it. They got a, the Doyle and uh, Cloudy get reassigned. Um, and like, so like all these things happen people get murdered and and innocent an innocent person gets killed uh all this stuff happens and it's just like nothing has really come of it (laughs) so it's like a tragic ending in a sense um but it's kind of it's that typical 70s ending yeah i just thought stylistically if they if they didn't even tell you what happens to everybody that even that would have been just like you would just wonder for the rest of your your days until apparently French Connection Two, which I didn't even realize existed. Well, yeah, hold on yeah. now. Hold, we'll we'll come back to that. But like, you uh-huh. would have just like it could have been like anything could have happened. A gunshot off screen that would have been so um, dramatic and awesome. Like after all of this, like you don't know what happens, especially after you just killed an FBI guy. Oh my god, <laughs> that's insane. Yeah, I wonder. I mean, I wonder what the film would have been like without the uh, end kind of summaries, but. Yeah, I I love his I love that sequence of just he's almost blind with his with his obsession at this point that he is so hell bent on tracking Charnay down he's chasing him through that warehouse that he doesn't even care at all or even acknowledge that he just blasted his, this uh, you know Bill Hickman the FBI agent uh, like completely just murdered him and. Yeah does not you know buddy is trying to stop him and he just doesn't care anymore and then he turns the corner and you hear that one gunshot if that had been the end of the movie with that ambiguous ending of like did he did he shoot charnay did charnay turn and shoot him did he shoot someone else did what was that gunshot i don't think there's really like a a definition of i don't think friedkin even really has answered what that gunshot meant yeah, I feel I but, feel like it's just totally undercut by the summaries. So it's it is, yeah. It's like you have that ambiguous ending that then is like, but then here's what happened, everybody. Yeah, everyone's fine, or you know, all these people are this way. It's I, uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it, that was not the the ending I expected, but I was definitely ready for it to just end on that gunshot, and because uh, his his path to it's not even about justice or anything. It's his obsession. And just, he is more and more reckless, more and more defiant. He doesn't even care that he shot the shot. One of his colleagues in a sense, like, I mean, he didn't like the guy, but he's just like, he, he was singularly focused on getting Sean. Yeah. And, uh, I was, uh, yeah, I don't know. I was a little surprised by that ending. Yeah, but that doesn't. I mean, the the end summaries doesn't like take the movie down at all for me. It's just no. It just, I just wonder without it what what the film would have, you know, how much more of an emotional moment it would have been without yeah. that. Yeah. Um. But yeah, but I don't. I like. I do kind of like like, you know, I like those dark seventies endings of like well. You know, they went through all this, and and he got away. And the guy who got really got busted was that French actor of all people who yeah. owned the car that the drugs were smuggled in. Uh, that he's the one who went to jail. Everyone else basically got away with it. And then Popeye and uh, Russo end up getting uh, reassigned. Yeah, they get they could keep they get to be cops still, but they're you know, 
it, it's it's it is like yeah, I guess even further more tragic, and then just also just listed as bullet points, like you know none of that's dramatized, so you don't even get to see them going through any of that or whatever. Yeah. So it is just sort of like how simple it all is. All this obsessiveness in one person leads to a a, a headline in a, for for an observer. So yeah. Very tragic, very 70s. So the movie comes out. Uh, it's released on October 9th, 1971. It, uh, I mean, it does huge, huge business. It ends up grossing, uh, I believe, about 51, 52 million dollars, yeah, uh, you I know, saw. grand total, and uh, which is just huge. I mean, it's you know, on, a, on a two million dollar budget, that's amazing. Um, it uh, was what the I think it's the fourth highest grossing of 1971. That could be right. Uh, behind Billy Jack of all movies, that that uh, it's amazing that that was the number one grossing movie of the year. Uh, Fiddler on the Roof and Diamonds Are Forever. This comes right after those, uh, oh. but. A huge, you know, huge business for everybody involved. Uh, Eddie Egan and Sonny Grasso completely, and, and Randy Jurgensen get the. Uh, oh, I, I forgot to mention Randy Jurgensen was the when the car gets impounded and they're searching it for the drugs. He's the cop who's got Henry Devereaux and is just basically trying to buy time. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. That's Randy Jurgensen. Um, That's Randy Jurgensen. <clears throat> Which, by the way, our friends over at Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers have a great Randy Jurgensen interview on their site, who uh, kind of recapping the life and times of Sonny Grasso as well. So great, oh, great cool. episode. You can check them out. Very cool. Uh, Definitely worth a listen. Yeah, they. Uh, so those guys all, you know, quit being police officers and and immediately got into Hollywood and working behind the scenes and uh, the. NYPD apparently went after Egan briefly just with the proceed the way procedure was portrayed in the film and uh, took away his pension and really like, you know, were not happy with him. He eventually, uh, you know, once all the legalities were done, he got his pension back. But uh, it was kind of sad to see that part end for him like that. But he was, I think, much happier in, in show business. Yeah, why not, right? What if you could do if you could be in Hollywood and or, you know, doing your thing, being the the guy who's relied on to tell these stories, relive your career, show them how it's done. Ugh, that's 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 way better than being a cop. <laughs> uh yeah, kind of. Yeah. <laughs> I would th- I would think it'd be way better than being a cop. Yeah, totally. <laughs> is it like is it like that James Woods Michael J. Fox movie, The Hard Way? Which the hard way do. oh yeah which, yeah totally it, it's basically that you think like the end of that movie the james woods character probably like wanted to leave the business behind and and, and go into hollywood and keep you know like that would be that would yeah. be something all <laughs> cops all cops want to be in hollywood oh don't you worry we're gonna look at the hard way yeah in a part of our michael j fox retrospective the fox down <laughs> Uh, but yeah this movie does uh, huge obviously like really boosted Friedkin and Hackman both right up top Uh, you know Hackman 
I think does Poseidon Adventure immediately after this. So he's suddenly an A-list actor, um, leading man right away. And Friedkin moves right on to The Exorcist. So shit, just yeah, a lot of successful things right in a row for these guys. Uh, and this kind of kickstarted it for them. That's great. Uh, <clears throat> the, the movie feels like, to me, the whole movie feels like a roller coaster. Mm. What kind of like just that intensity of like, I don't know, you know, especially the car chase sequence, but the whole thing, just the way it builds throughout the movie is like, you're, you're going up and up and up and then you hit that climax and then it's just kind of crazy. All right. At the end. Um, I love the way it feels. I I love, I I really think this movie holds up really well. Um, I think for an audience today, it would, it would just work, work great. I think it's a model for a, you know, a, a different way of doing a police movie. Yeah, I mean, I think what's great is that you you know the first twenty minutes of the movie at least are two parallel stories going on. You know, uh, bef- before things start to intersect, it's um, so you're getting a little perspective of what's going on between you know this obsessive cop and then this sort of you know elite drug dealer <laughs> making yeah. deals. Um, I mean, it's it's a nice juxtaposition of like people of different like statuses and like what they're you know, what they're all about. And like, again, like, uh, Doyle, uh, and cloudy are just these, like, these are narcotic cops. They, uh, narcotics cops who, uh, live kind of crap, like crappy lifestyles, you know, like they're, they're just, and they're, they're just trying to do their job. And then you've got this like elite dude who's just from France, uh, uh, bringing in his, his drugs. And, uh, living you know he's having fancy dinners stays in nice hotels does all these things and still outsmarting them the whole way and it's like it's like to me if you look at it it's like you know these elites versus the slobs it's 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 harold ramus or it's it's national lampoons all over again but it's just pure, <laughs> oh, yeah same movie purely dramatic but it's just all yeah. drama like and murder <laughs> drama and murder but it's basically the same like national lampoons like sort of uh uh theme <laughs> i think Slobs versus snobs. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I really, you know, I think Hackman's portrayal of Popeye Doyle as this, you know, right right wing, kind of not so good guy, uh, was, you know, part of that gritty edge of the seventies that these yeah. you're getting these uh, these characters who aren't necessarily likable, but you're, you know, like a, like a Sonny Corleone that <laughs> a bad guy that you just you know you can't not watch them you know yeah yeah and like when it comes down to like when you have cops painted this way and it's sort of like like yeah if you were a police officer you wouldn't want to be that guy but aren't you glad this guy's here you know in a sense but that sort of like speaks to like your level of where you are in that that class of things because if you're a as far as this movie's concerned if you are a black person (laughs) who deals drugs you're not happy that he's on the force, you know, or right. if you're a black person who relies on drugs as like sort of uh, the way to, to make a living, you know, like, like there's a very specific scene where, you know, he's, he's roughing them up. He's being a total, total piece of shit to all of them. But then he like gathers all their drugs, which for them would mean if they could sell them or whatever, would mean a meal for, a you know, meal rent, things like that. And he ruins them. He drowns them in liquor. Um, just to ruin their fucking day, <laughs> you know? And, yeah. 
not to bust them, but to like, and he, you know, he does it while he was trying to get to his informant, someone who's, who's in on the inside and knows yeah, these things. Yeah. But, um, you know, so, you know, you see that Hackman or Doyle sees himself as above these drug dealers because all drug dealers, you know, he's busting guys with three joints in his shoe or whatever, or these things where his, where his boss was telling him, like, there's no reason for this. Like, you're wasting time. You got you got all these busts, but these busts don't mean anything. You're not you're yeah. not clearing drugs off the streets. You're just clearing people off the streets. Um, you know, so there's this. Which gets into a wider discussion of like the the whole like anti drug sort of uh, police campaign, which we're not going to discuss here. But uh, you know, so that's sort of like there's you got your drug dealers at the bottom, and you got like Hackman or you got Doyle, and uh, like above them because at least he can brutalize them and be racist and be a dick. And then you've got the guy who always gets away, Shanye, like. This, you know, and it's heroin and it's expensive and it's millions of dollars. It's not three joints in a sock. Um, mm-hmm. What a what a fun, like, not fun, but like what an interesting way to portray, like, the differences between all these guys uh, uh, in one film. You know, all these different classes of people in a sense. Yeah, it's a uh, it's a fascinating, you know, look at, you know, cultural look at that at that moment, you know, um, yeah just love all these guys and they got they got uh, a lot of awards attention that year for sure. Absolutely. Uh, the film got let's see five eight eight Oscar nominations and it won five. Yeah, Hackman takes it home. Uh yeah, so the film won best picture, uh best yep. director for Friedkin, best actor for Hackman, best screenplay and best editing. How all super well deserved. Uh, it did not win supporting actor for Roy Scheider cinematography, which that just seems crazy to me and sound. Um, I wonder we should maybe, maybe this is a good social media experiment. We should look back at some of these awards seasons of, of yesteryear and see what, you know, what the almost put it up for, for voting again, like in from today's eye, what would you know, the best picture nominees of 1971, would you still vote for French Connection? Would you go with something else? Would you, you know, right. we'll put certain categories up. I think it'd be interesting to see. That might be fun. I think we should do that. Uh, so, yeah. So check out our social media accounts at Reconcinimation Podcast at Facebook, uh, Twitter, Instagram, wherever, Friendster. We're all over the place. So uh, check us out there in the coming weeks. But um, you, you mentioned... You mentioned French Connection two earlier. Now let come what back. What the fuck to that is spot. this thing? What is this? <laughs> French. What? French Connection two. French Connection two. Come on. <laughs> Bullshit. <laughs> what now, is this? it's actually not a bad film. You haven't seen it yet, right? I didn't know it existed until like a couple hours ago. Yeah, it's. Uh, it came out in I believe seventy four, and it picks up. You know, it, it continues. Popeye Doyle's obsession with finding Charnier and he ends up going to France and kind of havoc ensues there. But uh, it's, it's actually a really good film. It's not as good as French connection. It's um, directed by John Frankenheimer, another classic uh, director, but uh, I suggest give it a, check it out at some point. Maybe we'll cover it at some point here. 
Yeah, I mean, it's just it's just Doyle and Charnier return, and then nobody else, right? <laughs> right, right. I think I I can't remember if they mention you know because in in the world of this story, him and Buddy have been reassigned, so I don't think I, they may mention Buddy Russo, but uh, he's not in it. And then yeah. he's working with a uh, a um, in, like an inspector in France who is trying to help him on the case. So and it gets crazy. There's there's some crazy stuff in it, and it, but a great ending. All right. I mean, that'd be fun. Why not? <laughs> but uh, Fernando Ray was back as Chanier. Yeah, Fernando right. Ray, yeah. Yep. It's, it it's worth watching for sure. It's not as bad as you'd think it would be. But Okay. Um, what uh, They also, this whole creative team, not Friedkin, but everybody else kind of stays together and does another movie called The Seven Ups, which is kind of like another version of French Connection. It stars Roy Scheider and Tony Lobianco, who played Sal Buca. Oh. Um and uh, it's a good movie. It's, you know, just it's a sort of an imitation of French Connection, though. Okay. Uh, but have you most importantly, have you seen the 1980, I think, 85 TV movie Popeye Doyle? No. Can you guess who played Popeye Doyle in that film? I mean, was it Gene Ackman? <laughs> There's no way. It was it was Ed O'Neill. Oh, really? <laughs> Just before Married with Children. Oh, my gosh. All right. He plays yeah. Popeye Doyle. <laughs> yep. And it's like Popeye's gotten his into a whole other drug-dealing mess on, on his hands. So Is it pretty dramatic? <laughs> I just, yeah, I, it's not very good. Um, <laughs> I just remember seeing, you know, uh, they replayed it in the 90s, the early 90s on TBS, and I remember seeing ads for it. And I was like, what is this? And it oh, was amazing. I watched a little bit. Not not very good. Yeah. I mean, I still want to see the French Connection Saturday morning cartoon that they made in the 70s that is hard to find. Yeah. I'm sure. Yeah. I think it ran for two seasons on CBS. But <laughs> I'd love to see that. I'm 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 picturing the animation style. It's really fantastic. There's definitely like an animated like creature that isn't a real creature, but like it's a some weird squirrel like raccoon yeah they've got to have like a fuzzy thing. friend yeah. you know yeah. like a like a like an ewok <laughs> like an ewok but that can fly and has wings and <laughs> says says really cool jazzy jazzy uh one-liners <laughs> and they and the, the time traveling element was really good to add as well yeah yeah that's what you did that's what you did <laughs> Uh, but uh, overall, I think the movie, you know, I think it works in 2020. I think it holds up. I think the legacy of the movie, I mean, it's on all the top, you know, top whatever lists. It's, you know, the AFI's got it high up. It's, you know, part of the National uh, Film Registry. It's it's one of the, still one of the most respected, and it deserves respect that it has. Um, yeah. I, yeah, I, I think it's uh, it's a real achievement. Yeah, you, there's not there's not a lot like this that can endure for fifty years. Uh, it's still uh, it's it's fantastic. Uh, it's going to be on I the list for, for another fifty years. You know. Yeah, I I think for as far as Hackman's body of work, I mean, it's funny. Like his first leading role is still one of his best. He would definitely you know uh, come close to it, if not you know arguably surpass it with certain roles that he had, but. Um, this has always got to be top top three for for Hackman for sure. So for you in the hackathon, 
we've covered three movies. There are many, many more for Hackathon 2.0, 3.0, and Hackathon 2000. But uh, you'd probably rank overall, or not probably, you would rank overall top two, top three. I would, I, I would probably personally put uh, French Connection at number one. Ooh, the ultimate yeah. hack, hack experience. <laughs> yeah, the, the ultimate hack. The ultimate hack. All right, cool. Yeah, I love it. That's great. Yeah. I can see why. But, uh, it's fantastic. I'm, I'm in agreement yeah. with you. Legacy, uh, longevity, uh, uh, generation, generationally. This is it. This is a great film. Yeah, and it was it, you know it was fun to look back at Gene's career and and there's so the cool thing is that there's so much more to get into and I'm sure we'll try to you know work some of his other films uh, you know spread throughout the year. I'd love to look at the conversation, um, yeah. another great '70s film, uh, just so many other other you know great ones we can cover. So I'm looking Ants. forward to doing that down the road. We could do ants. He was. He was. Oh, ants! Funny. Loose cannons. Yeah. Yeah, loose cannons, moose port, all that shit. Let's do it. <laughs> Don't care. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, it was fun to look back at Hackathon uh, 1.0, and I'm looking forward to what we're gonna cover next time here. I'm not gonna spoil it. We're gonna have to. You're gonna have to hang on till we're back at uh, up back for our next episode. Yeah. Come tune in. Download it. Tell us all about it. Let us know what you think. Engage us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Yeah. Give us the give us the shout outs. Give us the if you if you like what we're doing. If you want to see some other movies that you like the style of what we're doing, give us a shout. Uh, we love feedback. Uh, we, we will not. We will like all your tweets at us for sure. <laughs> we will like the mentions. So uh, and then keep checking us out on that because you know there's going to be more tournaments. More more things to talk about in films going forward, so it'll be exciting. Yeah, we had our top top cop tournament. We had our Christmas tournament. We got more tournaments coming your way. Uh, they're always just kind of fun little deals for social media. So yeah, check those absolutely. out and and check us out at. Uh, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Stitcher, uh, Reconsideration.com, of course, and you know anywhere you get your your podcast uh, your podcast, where you can find us. Download it. And uh, all right, well, uh, I'm going to pop eye on out of here. And uh, everybody stay healthy. Uh, you know, hope uh, everyone is doing okay out there. And and uh, keep supporting uh, the podcasts that are out there. And uh, we'll see you next time on Reconsinimation. Bye now. <laughs>